0: Welcome to Trial Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers who are telling great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. Today we have another great episode. We have Don Clarkson with us today. Don is a phenomenal psychodramatist and really largely the person responsible for bringing psychodrama to lawyers and to lawyering. Don was the psychodramatist who, back in the 1970s, was involved in what, what appears to be the first psychodrama for lawyers at a meeting of the National College of Criminal Defense Lawyers with John Ackerman. And at that time, he met Jerry Spence. And when Jerry Spence started trial lawyer college in 1994, he brought Don in and Don really was the steward of the development of using psychodrama in lawyering. And the idea that Jerry had and others had to become a better lawyer, you really need to become a better person and pursue your journey inward of self-exploration and figuring out, who we are and why we are who we are, and using that so that we can be our true selves, our full selves in the courtroom. And today, Don is going to talk with us about what have become known as, at least for lots of lawyers around the country, as Donisms, as pieces of wisdom in sayings that he's used to help educate lawyers to become better people and to become better husbands Wives, parents, children, and lawyers. So, this is a real treat. I'm very happy that we're here, and I'm very happy that Don recorded this session. Now, he recorded this about a week ago before the George Floyd tragedy and before the civil unrest, but Don's story is very, very relevant, as you'll see. To what's happening today all around us. So let's get going I'm very happy and frankly nervous to have with us today one of my favorite people in the world the best listener that I know, and I think that's probably the biggest compliment I could could give somebody, the wisest person I know. And Don Clarkson is a true gem and an absolute phenomenal psychodramatist who has been at the heart of certainly Trilors College for many decades, or at least two and a half decades roughly. And I'm very appreciative and grateful that Don's taken the time today to be with us. Don, thank you so much for, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Don, I'd like to ask you today about what I call, and other people call, Donisms, some nuggets of wisdom that we've taken down from working with you in groups. And first, I'd like to ask you about your story, because one of the things that you've often said is that you cannot tell someone else's story until your own, till you know your own story. And what do you mean by that?
1: Well, we filter everyone's communication with us through our own filters, our own life experiences. And those experiences color what we hear. And often if we have some uh, blind spots or we have some spots which we're having a tough time dealing with, we will not hear the other person's true story. We will hear that story but it will be minus those things which you have filtered out of your own life. And if you really want to understand another person, it's really important that you have worked on your own life. All the things that have happened to you have been able to work with it through other people, not just your own eyes, to test them out. Then you begin to listen and you begin to hear that person with their issues. But the one thing you're trying always not to do is impose your issues on the other person uh, because they will manage uh, to kind of be shut down. So to tell someone else's story, first of all, means you have to tell your own story. What's been important to you and what are the things that have hurt you and what are the things that have been your successes and what things are you frightened of? All those are very important to listening, but that means listening totally with everything you got going for you, your body, your uh, emotions which you've identified, all of the kind of nonverbal communications that you have received in your life, uh, which you have to put into words and understand, that's truly listening. And you probably know that I, think, Scott, that when you are able to listen to someone, you're really giving them a gift. You're giving them a gift that you're hearing them and that they're important to you and that their feelings mean something. Nothing is worse than when someone's telling you something and they really get cut off. I've always told people that Uh, if you really have something you want to share with someone, make sure it's not too painful unless you really know them very well. Uh, I say stay away from friends, especially if you have any kind of pain. Because friends want to make you feel good. Friends want to put their arms around you in a particular way. But that is not the joy of being heard. The joy is that they hear you regardless of the pain. And they know that you will be there for them after they have shared with you what they need to share. That's really what this is all about.
0: Don, you've often said listening is like holding another person.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, I always like to um, think about it in different ways, but I, I think that many of us have been a product of caring parents, caring friends, but the the, the listening has often been to their advantage. Uh, I often use, and you probably know this example, that when we are very young, very, very young, you know, we're sitting there and we have this new baby in our arms and, um, you know, the baby's exciting to look at and the baby's not doing anything but crying and pooping and pooping and crying and asking for some other food if you get available. And you put up with that until you put him in bed at night and all of a sudden at nighttime, you look over and you hear this little beautiful thing crying at two o'clock in the morning and you have to be at, get up at six and you look at look over at your partner who's there and you say, oh, I'll get him. Mm-hmm. And you go pick him up and you put that baby over your shoulder and you pat him and you walk like this proud parent with all the joys that go with it. And then you put him back and the poor child goes back to sleep and you go back to sleep to hear the alarm clock go off in 15 minutes. And so that goes on for a little bit. And the other parent does the same thing but eventually it takes its toll on you. And all of a sudden you turn over to your partner at two o'clock in the morning, to, it's your turn. And partner said, no, I just did it last night. No, it's your turn. So what happening is listening to what the child is saying or the baby is saying to you becomes not quite as important as you having some rest to go to work. So if you can begin to turn off your needs for the other person's needs, you then begin to uh, listen and you say, oh, my baby needs this. And my needs become second. But at some point in time, the baby's needs become second and that becomes a listening piece for all of us. So struggling with this, um, when you are able to talk to someone and you have shared who you are and they have shared who they are with you. It's a very important piece of life's communication. The sharing becomes one of the most important things we can do and have with the other person. But the sharing has to be open, has to be open to both sides of us and not one-sided. So what I'm really trying to get at is that the moment you hear this person and you hear their needs, they feel taken care of. And when you're taking care of someone, they feel held. And that's what I always mean when I say if you really listen to someone, you're actually holding them. That's what I'm talking about.
0: And you've also said that our greatest tool is our ability to listen.
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) It's... I mean, it's our first uh, tool is to hear. And I can't emphasize this more that when you are with people, that if you want to help them move on to step two in their life or wherever it is they want to go, uh, they have to know that they were heard and they were willing to share with you. One of the things we know about people is they learn that there's so much the other person can take. And when they figure that out, they will tell you so much and then leave you out after that because they think that it's fruitless. Uh, You know when you're there when that person does not filter to take care of you. And often we learn that we try to take care of our parents we try to take care of friends so that we won't hurt them. But we really want them to hear us, but they don't. And that's what I'm really talking about, Scott.
0: And you've said often that when we're talking with someone and we feel like we want to say something, but we we don't because we say it's not going to do any good. I mean, I think of a time when I wanted to have a conversation with my dad and I thought, well, that's not going to do any good. You've talked about the need to say what you need to say for yourself, regardless of whether it's going to do any good. Can you articulate that better than I have?
1: How many times have you heard in that light, why should I say this to them? It's not going to do any good. It just won't do any good. So why waste my breath? Which really entirely misses the point. Uh, the struggle often is that if you're expecting the person to change because they share something with you, uh, you need to get out of that boat and go swimming in another stream. The, the, the thing that's important to give you strength for yourself is to be able to say what you need, it becomes free. It may be painful. You may hurt the other person, but there is no need for you to continuously carry around that hurt. That hurt becomes sort of a prison uh, for you to stay in. And, uh, I, you know, sometimes you can't be cruel, but you really have to tell people where you stand. It becomes a key issue in your growth and development
0: you've said that our job in life is to recognize the holes in the ground from our childhood or from our past so that we don't fall into them again.
1: Well, I need to laugh at that. I mean, you spend a lifetime trying to figure that one out. Um, Many of us have themes in our life that were given to us very early on in life. And those themes dominate us. They tell us how to behave, what's important to the other person. Most of the time, these themes don't help us. They help the other person, but it helps us in the sense that we don't get murdered in the process. So we're able, uh, for example, with our families, there are certain things you just don't say to your parents, even though you want to, uh, because of what it you think it will happen. I really believe that you can carry that a little bit further uh, the person you're protecting is not your parents, is you're protecting yourself. So if I say this, I, my fear is they're going to come back and kill me if I say this, or I won't be able to live here, or I won't be able to have you as parents. And we wind up in this whole process of defending against our own needs. It's It's really a key issue for all of us in our life. And so I don't know if that's making sense to you, but I struggle with this, Even in this time of life, there are things going on constantly in my family that that I just want to say, look, (laughs) after all these years, uh, I still can't tell you what I want because I think what I want will kill you. It hasn't, but it's in my head that it will. Uh, So you really have to start owning up to this part of your life.
0: You've said that our, our goal in life is to understand who we are, forgive our parents, and forgive ourselves.
1: Well, I mean, that's kind of a uh, tough one for me. Um, you know, as a kid, um, I grew up in L.A. in, in a project pretty rough. Pretty, and that wasn't pretty, it was rough. And I had a mother who was alcoholic and schizophrenic, which I didn't know that at the age, but she that's what she did. I could walk around in this little uh two bedroom place with all four of us sometimes and hear five of us really at the time and hear her talking to herself. And I, I used to peep down around the corner to see who she was talking to, only to realize she was talking to herself. So uh, my mother was never there for me. She did perform a function later in life, but she was never there for me. And then I had these two brothers and a sister who were uh, the youngest was my sister. She was almost 11 years older than me and the two brothers so they were pretty much able to fend for themselves and i could see them sometimes laughing and joking with each other i didn't know what the hell they were laughing and joking about but i knew that they were and then i had a father who i never saw except for moments Uh, i knew that there were some tough times because um, i was playing with a little next-door neighbor and we were playing pirates treasure and i just happened to have taking the one clock out of the house, which was a, a, guarded instrument at the time. And I took the clock with him and I re- even remember his name. That's how important it was. So I, Alfred and I went into the backyard there and we buried the clock. And of course we buried it to pieces, but we buried the clock. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't have any sense of what, how important that clock was. And, and my father came home that evening and, uh, He said, where's the clock? And I uh, knew that I had done something wrong by the tone of his voice. And so he says, Don, where's the damn clock? Because I was, you know, the cat was out of the bag at that moment. So I said, buried it. And so he says, go dig it up. And I I didn't want to go dig it up because I knew how it would look. And then as I came in the house with this, crumbling mass of whatever it was. Uh, He took his hand and hit me on my butt and sent me up the steps. But I think living in the project as it was, I had a pretty nasty mouth. And as I got to the top of the steps, I said, you MF. That's not how I said it. Um. And my sisters and them told me later, he laughed, he said he couldn't believe that I was talking to him like that. Um, But I realized that later in life uh, that he was not the person I perceived him because I can perceive him as being really uh, mean. Not understanding much of anything at that time, except that uh, if I did something wrong, I was going to get killed. As it got a little bit later in in life, I mean, I'm talking about five or six or so, he put me on a train with my mother and sent me to Texas. Um, He sent me there with my mother, but I was leaving my two brothers and a sister and I could not imagine why he would do that. I said, what was wrong with me that they got to go I mean, stay, and I had to go with this woman who was mostly my mother and, you know, go all the way to Texas. I, I think I can even remember that we were riding on the uh, Sunset Limited from uh, L.A. to New Orleans. I think that's what it was called. And I just, I hated the man. And I was stuck with this aunt who was like, she was like, Tarzan. I mean, she was on me, but she was a school teacher, which was my life savior. But I could not figure out why he did not. like me. And my aunt was such a stickler for penmanship and things like that. And a little bit later in the years, he sent me a, a $50 in an envelope, not even a check of money. I was, I guess he was courageous. And I wrote him back and, and said, um, I don't want your damn money. I think I did say damn, but I was far enough away not to get hit. <laughs> and it went. And I just dislike it. And then he sent me a swim bicycle, which I never rode. I could never figure out how to get it back to him, to let him know how angry I was at him. Truth of the matter, I was not angry. I was hurt. But it came out as anger. Um... I went out when I was about, oh, I guess 12 to 14 in that age, out, uh, and I saw him for the first time in all those times, and and he looked at me and said something. It was okay, but I just didn't have any feelings, but he said something that rubbed me the wrong way, uh, so I asked my brother, could I stay with him and not stay in the house with his his new wife, who was very nice. They were very nice to me. But what I didn't know is this man was trying to take care of three children and a crazy wife, which kept him working from sun up to sundown. Then I realized that I had not been able to reverse roles with this man. I never reversed roles till later in life and realized that it was the most loving thing he could have done. Uh, my brother and sister told me how much he cried later and how much he was sorry about it. But uh, he he was good. I never really got close to him because I didn't stay out there. So, But what I did do in therapy later is learn how, first of all, forgive myself for hating him. Because I thought it was inappropriate. You shouldn't hate your mother and father. Uh, But learn what this man was going through in life. All the pitfalls that he had. And so in talking about this, Scott, it became early in life that you couldn't trust these authority figures in your life. <laughs> and I always had to put everybody to a test at one point in time. So whatever authority hit me in the face, my first response was to see what it is they wanted. Could I do it? How to avoid their wrath and then to get what I wanted. Uh, over the years, that became very problematic uh, but it was holes that I stepped into. But uh, in 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 the field that I work in, we, we kind of define that as culturally conservative behavior. It gets you places. It's not like it's detrimental, but it has no creativity in it. All it does is keep you carrying the same old themes over and over again. And that's the kind of thing that uh, uh, I'm talking about. So if we have been abandoned or felt abandoned, or we've been treated loving or whatever it is, but if you're not careful with things that did not work out right for you, you will try to fix them, and often you're trying to fix the past with the present, and that really doesn't work. The real job is to understand what those holes were that were created for you, uh, and then to understand that those holes will always be there the rest of your life, but you have to find a way to put a Band-Aid over those things, that they don't go away. If you lose someone that hurts you, that doesn't go away. If you've been in an abusive relationship, that never goes away. You, It always stays with you. But often what we do is take those hurts and those feelings and whatever they are, we put them on the shelf and don't deal with them. And then something happens in the present day that brings you back to that. And all of a sudden you're stepping in the same old hole again. So the job becomes to not step in the hole, but recognize the hole is there, but to understand you have all these other persons around you who care about you, uh, who want to be with you. And sometimes that's very difficult. That's what I mean about the holes.
0: And you've often talked about The fact that if you can't talk about something, it's out of control.
1: Well, that one I will take credit for. Those Donisms that you talk about, I don't take credit for them. This was years of working with people over time and restating things that they've said. Um, and what I'm really talking about is you know, when I get up in the morning, My glasses are in the same location. Everything is in the same location. If it's out of place, I don't know what to do with myself. I said, where the hell are my glasses? Um, And so keeping the order is important to me. And the older I get, keeping the order is more important. Um, But (laughs) we get stuck sometimes with things getting out of place. And what do I mean? that all of a sudden you're with someone that arouses your anger, arouses your wrath. You begin to want to say something about it, but you're still kind of nervous about saying about it. Um, But then what you come to realize is that, and I always like this, that if something is in your face (laughs) that is scary or bothers you, in life, that's really the direction you need to go. That's where you should head. Because if you don't, it will stay there to haunt you at some unsuspecting moment. Uh, here in uh, where I live in, in Maryland, there's a fish called a rockfish, striped bass. But this old bass is so smart. He likes to hide, hide behind rocks. And as another prey passes by, that's when he stoops up and bites them. And <laughs> uh, so that's kind of a route that i used to take i wanted to see what it was you know a lot of psychodrama and a lot of work individually and things like that It's told me that you know you can't hide behind rocks all your life um, i can tell you that uh there are people who have gotten married you know in my family um i don't i was trying to think this as i'm, as I'm talking Uh, I think maybe there are one or two people who have gotten divorced. My oldest brother got divorced five times. I should tell you something. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to say, Junior, what the hell is going on? You're marrying again. He says, well, Don, if I can't live with him, I'm going to get unmarried. I said, well, Junior, maybe you want to think about who you're marrying. And he would say. If I can't live with them, I'm getting divorced. I said, what do you think when you are 55 and they're 25, you may be stepping your foot into some hole that uh, you will sink in. And he would look at me and laugh. And he says, you haven't learned any lessons in life, have you, son? I said, yeah, I don't want no more of those lessons. (laughs) But (laughs) the idea is, is that in our life, we are with people that we care about. But sometimes we're caring about them for reasons that they don't even know about. They become the masters of us. soul So in a lot of couples counseling, when I used to do it, when both would walk into my office, there was always one familiar theme. If you would just change my partner, our life will be okay. And it was always... Fix the other person. But the truth of the matter is both people knew who they were marrying when they got married. But they didn't want to face what they knew because they wanted the marriage. They wanted to have that relationship. They wanted to do whatever it was they thought would happen. But uh, eventually, if that's never dealt with, that marriage is going to break up. And that's what I'm talking about. So whatever you need to face, your greatest strength is going straight to that. Go to it. Don't run from it. You may be scared to death, but you're better off than hiding behind a rock, which is what I get concerned about. So I'm going to always say, if you can't talk about something, that's out of control because it has to deal with the fear that you carry around with you.
0: And that relates to another uh, Dawnism, I'll say. The place that seems most dangerous is where safety lies
1: yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, that you're unsafe as long if I don't know, is that a word called unsafe? Not safe, I don't know which it is, but if there's something that's frightening to you and you don't deal with it, uh, you will never feel safe. Um, when I was coming up and one of the things about living in a little place with the, in Graham, Texas, and also with my grandfather in a little place called Camilla, Texas. My grandfather would always say, the only thing you gotta be afraid of is me. (laughs) And I would say, what are you talking? He says, look, if you don't face it, you will get killed. Now I don't mean go out there and jump in somebody's face, but you have to uh, be clear what you mean and what you stand for in life. The scene that always comes to my head as a young boy down in a place called Camilla, Texas, in this little shack that my grandfather lived in, was this guy's mule that used to come by the house and lean his head over the fence to eat whatever it was he was eating. And my grandfather would run him away. And when the man would come by, he would tell the man, he says, if you don't keep that damn mule, out of my yard, I'm going to kill him. And, you know, I'm thinking too much about it. Two or three days later, the mule came, and my grandfather shot the mule um, without batting an eye. <laughs> and and the man came by and cursed at my grandfather. My grandfather said, do you really want to curse at me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was the end of that story. But I realized I didn't like what he did. I thought it was awful. But what he was afraid of, what I think that plant must have been important to him enough to kill a mule. I don't know. Uh, but he stood for it. My aunt, when I was growing up with her, she was the only school teacher for, for secondary school in Graham, Texas. She was it. We were these black kids living in this one town where everybody knew everybody. My aunt knew all the families and et cetera like that. And because I was in a school where she was on school teacher, sometimes the boys would uh, sometimes want to pick on me because I was the you know the teacher's child. And, uh, and I occasionally got into a fight, but one time I got into a fight, she came to me and said, "I didn't break up that fight, but you didn't fight. You let that boy beat on you. If I ever see that again, you and I will fight and you will lose." and you lose more than you're thinking about. I didn't know what she said at the time. Uh, but she was a strong person who said, stand up. Even if you're wrong, stand up and then defend yourself against it. Uh, and that was uh, that got hammered into me later. But the idea is that you just had to fight for what you believed in, even though it brought about serious pain. That that's really kind of the struggle. Uh and I've had numerous occasions to have to deal with that in life, but it's been a lesson that I'd never want to unlearn.
0: Don, share with us more of your story. So from when you're growing up in Texas and, and you're becoming you and identifying holes in the ground and 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 growing.
1: I thought you heard me, I guess. We're going to have to go through a listening exercise with you, but it was, uh, you know, you know my age. I'm 80 years old now, and so I came up doing some really rough times in Houston in particular, um, but Fort Worth in the beginning. Like I said, my aunt was the only school teacher there in Graham, Texas, for the young Black kids there, and... So she would always come home on the weekend. We'd come home on the weekend to be with her husband in her house. But on Sunday night, we would head back to Graham, Texas so she could teach school. And riding on that bus, you know, we used to ride the, the Greyhound bus. Boy, that was the bus. We had the Continental Trailways and the Greyhound bus, but we rode the Greyhound bus to some town, I think it was Bryson or something like that. That comes in my head. But we'd get on the bus because we were always the last thing on the bus going to Graham. And we would have to sit on the back, on that back row by the engine where the diesel fumes were struggling. And uh, I would get sick from the fumes. And my aunt sometimes would get up and ask the man, Could we move up a couple of Uh, seat so she could open the window and some very nasty things were said to her, Uh, really nasty. She took it and we stayed on that uh, back row. And for a long time, when I'd get around any engine that had diesel fumes in it, I would go right back there. It's like the odor took me back to that place, which I hated. And then we would go and we lived in Graham in the back room of this black Couple's home in you know, a one room, and across this little small driveway, he ran the best barbecue I understand in that area in Graham. And we could not cross the road to get a sandwich from him; that he would have to bring it to us. And my aunt used to say, "You, we will get over this. We will get over it." And I, you know, you when you grew up that way, you didn't quite see what she was talking about. Uh, and of course, as I was back in Houston with my third aunt, the one who I spent most of my life with, who you could never tell that she never finished, I don't think past about the sixth grade, but she was extremely proper, used perfect English, and would get on me about not uh, speaking correctly. Um, But she uh, would always say to me, you have to learn how to live where you're living before you make these moves. And I, it was still a hard time for me. Um, my uh, cousin in Dallas, who was over the merchandise smart club, the club where they, um, you know, people, I think I was told that at that time, Dallas was sort of the, the mecca <laughs> for Uh, fashions from New York, from Paris, and they came straight there. So the modeling would go on. And you know, my aunt, I mean, my cousin would get me a job waiting tables. And he would always say, Don, whatever you do, uh, because we need this money, you look down, you never look up on that stage where the women are, serve the drinks and get back. And okay, what's said to you, that's how you had to live. Uh, Later in life, when I was in high school, uh, I would uh, be with my cousin, blonde, blue-eyed. You did not know she was not white. She looked white. There was nothing you could say that says she wasn't white. We would be in the car and the Harris County police would stop us thus far, every time and pull us out of the car, pull me out of the car and want to know what that whore was doing in the car with me. And we had to prove who we were with our driver's license. I'm not sure if it said Negro or colored on the driver's license, but we had to prove it. And this is Houston. Uh, So I had a great resentment at that time in my life for living there. And when I left Houston uh, to go to Howard in DC, I had these three aunts sitting on the train station there in Houston crying because they knew I was never coming back. I said, I would never come and live in this town again, which I never did. Um, so I, it, the growing up had a lot of uh, growing for me. I was a, a good student in high school. I was, I, but I also got in a lot of fights so they never knew what to do with me. I wasn't one that you could just kick out of school, but because I was a good student, Uh, I managed to stay in school. I think some of the other people would have gotten kicked out. So the kind of racism that you could think about turned against ourselves. You know, I was lighter skinned than some of my closest friends. So I would get some privileges, et cetera, that they didn't get. And I knew I got it, but I could never acknowledge it because I wanted the job. So growing up, uh, it was a multitude of things. I also used to play in some joints. My cousin was a, uh, a great trumpet player there. And, I uh, I took trumpet and was there, and I would go with him in these joints when I was too young to be in these joints, but nobody seemed to care, play with him. So in many ways, I had a lot of things that were good for me, but, uh, there were some parts that were really troubling. I don't know if this is helping, but, uh, I've had some life altering experiences like that all through life. And, uh, through a lot of work on myself, I realized that my anger uh, was was getting in my way. Uh, and I at one point, I started feeling entitled. Um, so in my first year in college, I was as close to being kicked out as you could get kicked out without being kicked out. Uh, and then I had a, uh, a message from my band director from high school and He said, because I had a scholarship, and he said, you going to throw that away? And the way he said it, and then my grandfather, and I still have his little letter, which my wife pulled out not so long ago, which said, Don, make us proud. And those lessons changed my life right away because I was heard, because I knew what they meant. And so... um, that's kind of my early life uh,
0: struggle you know I hear so much pain and you are the epitome and vision in certainly in my mind and many others of, of pure love yeah. and it, it's just it's striking
1: I do love um, and I don't think you can love. <laughs> if you don't allow yourself to be loved. And I think that's the struggle we have in life is that we often are loved all the time. But as you've probably heard me say a thousand times, if love doesn't come the way you want it, you will never feel loved. Uh, And that's the issue. And I'm saying it took a lot of work with some great people being in groove and individual work that said, okay, Don, let's look around you. This is what's happening to you. Let's see why you don't want it. That was always a big question, why you don't want it. And I uh, began to understand that it was protection. It was big time protection against being hurt. And so I think love is an essential ingredient out of pain. And once you... Uh, manage to endure the pain and come out of it, you allow yourself to be loved. Or you can take the other route and just allow yourself to go out and hate and hate and hate. They never got me anywhere. Uh, but the love
0: has. And your... Let's talk about anger for a moment because you've often said that... Uh, You know, anger and pain, which are separate things, but behind anger is hurt.
1: Yes. Uh, I always tell people, the moment you start feeling angry, ask just uh, why are you angry? Uh, And most of the time, the anger, it comes across as a way to not have to deal with the hurt you experience. Hurt just kind of disables us. But anger gives us something to do with the hurt. Um, Anger, from my point of view, is a defining feeling. It defines who you are, what you're about. Uh, It says, this is what I believe in. And if you don't understand that, you will meet me at places you don't want to meet me. But I don't want anybody to get rid of their anger. I want them to understand why they're angry. And to understand why they're angry, they will begin to um, uh, deal with the hurt. So if, if you've hurt me, Scott, but I get angry, I can say, I'm gonna kill you, Scott, because you didn't do what you should do. Or I might say, why am I hurt? And I may be hurt because I don't feel loved by you. I may feel betrayed by you, but my way of not feeling helpless is to be angry. That is a key thing. I don't care when I get angry. I always now, I mean, over the years, have asked myself, why are you hurt? I never asked the question, why am I angry? I know why the hell I'm angry, but I don't know why I'm hurt. And I always, I don't care when it happens. You know, sometimes my children, when they were growing up, used to really just <laughs> piss me off. And I would I said, damn it, I'm your daddy. Be quiet. <laughs> but I realized that what they were pointing to is the struggles I had as a kid, not feeling hurt, things like that. So uh, anger defines us. And if you can listen to anyone who's angry with you, try to back off, understand why are they hurting? In the culture that we live in right now, which is so divided, you know, a couple of people that you know, that I know, I see them constantly on the other side of the fence that I'm on. And I keep saying, how could they be so stupid? And I get angry with them and I want to call them up and say, stop it. As a matter of fact, I made one moment of anger and, and on one of those Facebook things. And I just wrote in big, bold letters, B in quotes, S in quotes to the person. <laughs> and the person said, Don Clarkson, how are you doing? He knew exactly who it was. <laughs> and I said, how could he be feeling like that? But what I'm taking is that I was angry because I misread this person. And I said, how could he feel this way? But the other side of the coin, I'm still trying to understand how he could take certain positions with me. Um, And I need to understand it because I think I'm missing out on something very important in life. And I'm not just talking about supremacy and things like that. But this division feels much more historic in nature, emotionally historic. And I really have been struggling to find out what it's about. But the anger is what I'm trying to tackle, uh, their anger and my anger, but mostly my hurt that the person could feel that way. Scott.
0: Talked about some people want to kill the anger and not feel it.
1: Yeah, it's called murder. <laughs> <laughs> um you know that's, uh, that people who offend you, uh, and I keep saying that if everybody acted on their anger, there would not be another living soul on earth. Um, I always think about the little kid who gets to, not such a little kid, but a kid who all of a sudden says the unspeakable, he speaks to one of the parents, he says, I hate you. And then you take a deep breath, but they also want you up in times for breakfast. It is a killing experience, but the anger tells the person what they need. It's not the event; it's what they need. And it's a tough lesson. It's been a tough lesson. I still struggle with to this day. I'll see without. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm no, sorry. Go ahead. I just want to say again, these donisms. you know, something about that sounds like a disease. (laughs) 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 Say more, Don. (laughs) (laughs) But these are things that I have tried to synthesize into a few words what people are saying. And I think we remember a few words, not lots of words. Uh, And that I don't want people to hide in the bush. You know, uh, the one that I always like that we never talk about is if you're in need of a drink of water, why the hell do you go to an empty well to get your thirst thirst quenched? <laughs> and what I'm talking about is the pattern that we go to fulfill some need, but the need is never going to be felt because the well is empty. I used to see a lot of that in in family therapy and in couples counseling. So well, say your-
0: more about that. What does that yeah. mean?
1: You keep picking people to date, to live with, marry, uh, but they don't have any of the things that you need. They're just a a repetition of what you've been uh, struggling with. That's all. And so the struggle is the empty well, but you need something to fill it. And you keep thinking this person is going to fill it, and then you suddenly realize they can't which means you haven't seen them and you haven't recognized them. The things that we do like, and as I've said before, they don't really quench your thirst. You need someone who can wrap their arms around you and be there for you, etc. But often in this life uh, where there's a lot of instant stuff more than before, I think um, it's very easy to get enthralled with the shell and not, what's inside of the shell, that's all I'm really talking about.
0: And Don, this relates to your definition of depression, at least much of what we've talked about. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, you know, there are clinical definitions of, of depression, you know. Um, and, and they're all right, and I, I believe them. Uh, that is not my concern. But I don't like to deal with it that way when I'm dealing with people. I like to deal with the idea that outside of someone who's having some issues that need some medical help, but I believe depression is the feeling that we go around with, that we are unloved, that emptiness that comes with feeling that way and that it is a huge piece that we need to understand. Uh, As I said before, that the love we're looking for, obviously sometimes is not the love we need, it's the love we want. Um, You know, often uh, uh, when people are hurt badly, uh, some of us may go out and drink more to try to fill that void. Some of us may want to go spend our money to fill that void. Some of us want to get into impossible uh, tasks that we can never do, trying to fulfill that void. But it is a void. And that when I'm listening to people, I'm saying to myself, boy, I feel unloved because they must feel unloved. And you're trying to hear it. I do believe that there is a group, there are people like us who go around, feeling this void in our life, and we would just not like to feel it. But the only way you get past it is to confront it again. I can't tell you how many times I've been to f- funerals, and some of the people I know wouldn't show up. And, and and I would ask, well, why didn't you go to the funeral? And the person would say, because I want to remember them the way they were. And, of course, my immediate response is, well, that's not who they are now. They're dead. Let's deal with that. And they would always get angry and tell me I was just being too psychologically nonsensed. But I do believe that's what happens is that we want to hold on to something that's not there anymore. So feeling unloved sometimes is a guiding star for us. We want to change our direction and find another northern star.
0: And how do we that. How do we get past our holes in the ground? Our past traumas. Our, our uh, uh, looking for a, a significant other who's abusive. If you come from an abusive relationship, how do we? How do we know when we're doing that? And how do we get past it?
1: Well, you won't know until somebody beats the hell out of you. <laughs> then you say, oh, that's an abusive relationship. I'm. I'm obviously making light of this, but I don't think unless you get yourself into some situation where you are in a counseling or treatment position or some psychodrama that you just can't see it. You're blind. It's like if I tell you to look at a wall that's white and I tell you it's green, I don't care what you what I tell you, that wall is going to always be the color you see. And so you have to have validation in life. And I'm a firm believer in group and individual. And so you have to do both from my point of view. Everybody can't do it, but there are ways that you have to uh, spend your money on yourself rather than on that new Mercedes that I see driving down the street and say, I need this. And so that's where I am with that. Treatment and counseling, uh, however you get it, but it should be outside of the box you're used to living in.
0: And that, that relates to when you said, without pain, there's no growth.
1: Right. Well, uh, you, Scott, I know I'm talking to you because I'm talking to the choir, but um, right now I need to get on the floor and start exercising because I'm having some muscles that are beginning to atrophy. Okay. <laughs> but I don't want to get on the floor, and I don't want to lift those little five-pound weights like I should. I just want to lay on the floor. (laughs) Uh, But the idea is, is that anything that you have been successful at basically meant that you've lived through pain to get there. And the pain has been your growth hormone. The more pain, the better off you are. I want you to understand that when people overcome pain, they feel joy and happiness. But often when they don't overcome the pain, they feel stagnant or it just can't be done pain produces growth whether it's negative pain or good pain and I need to be qualifying that cuz some of the pain that we have experienced has been detrimental to us so someone has to say you don't lift weights this way this is the way you lift weights you need help etc
0: Don, you've been very gracious with your time. Do you have another five minutes?
1: Is that five minutes southern time or five minutes northern time? (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Ah. I know you're on the west, so I'll give you a break.
0: (laughs) All right. It's It's a deal. Don, you've talked about people pleasers. And people who are naturally people pleasers are... By definition, not taking care of themselves, and, and are the definition of helplessness. What does that mean?
1: Well, when you're a pleaser, you often take care of other people's needs, and and they're happy for you to do it, and they will say they will do everything to keep it going. But you are lost in this process. Um, in a family, often you will see the. Um, one of the kids learns what happens to their older siblings. And they said, well, I'm not going to let that happen to me. They did that to the parents or whoever it was they did it to. And that's not how to do because I don't want that same thing to happen to me. So they'll go around pleasing. Their needs go unmet. And unmet needs have to somewhere be fulfilled. And if you don't fulfill them, uh, you will constantly... um, go around searching for someone to make that happen. And often it doesn't happen. Uh, So the real struggle in life is to say, you know, Scott or Don, I have given my life to other people, but life has not given me what I thought I should get. And I'm saying, well, you didn't get it because you didn't think you deserved it. Uh, People who stand up for themselves and say, this is what I need, And I'm saying what I need, not what I want, that will often grow. It'll cause pain because you're telling people, I can no longer live this way and I want to move on with my life. That's what I mean about pleasing. Pleasers often just don't get pleased.
0: And Don, (laughs) when we talked earlier about listening is holding, it reminds me... Of how I've often seen you when people are are giving a hug but patting on the back. <laughs> you said, Don't let me see that pat on the back again. Hugging.
1: <laughs> oh, how vulgar can I get? Anyway, <laughs>
0: as vulgar as you want.
1: <laughs> no, we see, we see people hugging. And as soon as they hug, they start patting each other on the back. And I think that's what parents do to their babies. They pat them. That's supposed to make them feel good. It may, especially if they need burping. <laughs> but you're grown. And when you hold somebody, hold them. Put your arms around them. Don't pat your back. Because the pat is a distraction from the intensity of the relationship. And you want people to feel hell. And if you just hold somebody tightly, if you feel close to them or just hold them otherwise, they will feel you. And it will be more important than when you're patting him on the back, which is a distraction from it. So that's what I I really mean by not patting. Uh, I make it a purpose not to pat. And I make it a purpose also when I see someone to look at them when I'm getting ready to leave, to say to myself, this may be the last time in life that I ever see you. So I want to take this moment to feel who you are understand it. And of course, in my head, I hope that I will see you again. But how many times have we said that we were going to say, see you again? And it never happens. And then you're left with, I wish I had her. I wish I had her. So in this holding process to me is key to survival. So when you hug somebody, Scott, hug them. (laughs) And that's all I mean, just hug them. And if you're just a friend, Hug them like a friend, but don't pat them. they'll know the difference immediately. I don't know what we're gonna do with all this virus stuff because you know we even shake hands, so I think it's a tough road for right now
0: yeah it it's you know this feeling of of disconnection and and lack of human contact is 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 uh is very 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 troubling and Don one thing. And I'll never forget when uh, I worked with you last in California, from the moment we met, the moment that I, I gave you a hug, you were tuned into listening, how can I help? And you, and you verbalized it. And, and the ability to truly listen with all of your body is something that is such a role model you know, for me and, and for the rest of us. And I, and I apologize for the length of the interview, but I'm just so, I want to get more of Don, and we want to get more of Dawn. And what I'd like to do in closing is ask you about, you know, one thing I've often heard you say, how we leave each other says how we've been together or something to that effect.
1: Right. Well, two things in that we always focus on, how we start a relationship. And we look at it very carefully, see what people do in the beginning. And often when we meet people, they don't really say much. So you have to project onto them how they feel or what they're doing. And usually it's all projection coming from you. And, you know, uh, when I was uh, working at this one place, And they were interviewing an applicant for this job and the person would say, well, I've been uh, doing this job for 27 years. And the interviewer looked at him and said, no, you haven't. You've been doing the same thing over and over for 27 years, but it's not new what you're doing. So you begin to see that the person is wanting to apply old stuff to old stuff and not new stuff. Uh, In in relationships, you know, people who are late, like, on time. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm a big time person, I, I just think that time says it all. And that I will know how much you value me by how you hold to time. And when I was doing work uh, in my private practice, and if my time started at two, and you came at two thirty-five. That meant you only had twenty-five minutes with me. And people say, "How can you do that?" And I would say, and I would say to myself, and sometimes to them, "How could you do that to me?" And I knew that that often was going to be a struggle until we could confront it. The thing that happens in leaving is that we can look at the entire relationship uh, and look at what has happened in that relationship. And if this, if this ending is problematic, it will always be problematic. It doesn't go away. If this ending was in understanding and caring about the other, you will feel okay and you can resolve the relationship. But a, a relationship that ends in turmoil stays in turmoil. That's why many times people whose parents or spouses or whoever suddenly uh, – uh, dies without having worked out. It's the left holding the bag. but it also says that's how we've been living. We've avoided so many subjects in our life and we didn't didn't deal with what was present. So I've, I say look at all of your relationships, those that you're end and ask yourself the question. If this relationship was to end today, what would you have missed? What did you not say? What did you need to do? One has to sort of struggle with that question um, and deal with it from that perspective. I just believe that the ending will give you a picture of how you've been living in the relationship. How many things have just been left unsaid that you wish you had said, said, et cetera. Um, I, I have been practicing talking to all my grandchildren and sons, you know, who not quite as, as mushy as I am. <laughs> and, and I would say, I love you. Yeah, I love you. And I could hear that quick, I love you. <laughs> I love you too. And I would laugh and say, okay, one day we'll get over that. So I just hug them and I'm through with it. <laughs> but that's what I mean by how we leave. Says so how we have lived.
0: Well, Don, I love you
1: and Scott if you can picture this i am reaching out i'm grabbing your shoulders and then i'm pulling you close to me and i put my arms around you and i say to you i love you and i love the relationship we have been in and i wish that i have been a part of some of the things you think i am love you
0: love you too thank you don for for your wisdom for your insight um you have touched more lives than you can possibly know uh, and, and you're you're you I think of you and I think of love and i'm really struck by just you know marcin Chalupka says love conquers hate and i just think about you and you're the embodiment of of just kindness and generosity and love, and, and I'm just very thankful for the gifts that you've given me and the gifts that you've given to our tribe, and and I'm really looking forward to the next time when we can be together in person and I can uh, hug you in real life. And I appreciate you indulging me with the time today. I know this has gone on for quite some time, but I just I needed me some more dawn.
1: Thank you for your gifts to me, Scott.
0: You're very, very, very welcome. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes And I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.scottglovsky.com, that's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com, and I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, a Primer for Lawyers, that's on Amazon. I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.